0: Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Sam Mendes. Now, after the incredible success of, of American Beauty, after such a great debut, everybody's sort of looking to what to do next. And, and could you talk about that process, how you, how you uh, decided that Road to Perdition would be your second film?
1: Well, <clears throat> the first thing I I did uh, was go back home after the six months on the road with American Beauty. It felt like a kind of uh, a t- touring with a rock group, you know, wandering around the country with Kevin Spacey. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hard living uh and uh it it, uh, you know after the academy awards the best thing that that could have happened was what did happen which is i went i went back home and uh and i went back and did a play and uh, i had a chance to not think about it for a while Uh, because i think if i did i would have just frozen i think for about the first three or four months i was just i thought well how am i going to i kind of trapped myself you know i painted myself into a corner i and, but then I, 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 you know, the moment you, re, you read a, a script that you want to do again, it's like the director muscle kicks in. You start thinking in pictures again and you get lost in a story and you feel passionately about it and you stop thinking about the end result and you start thinking about the minutiae. And it's the minutiae that keep you going yeah. and that fascinate you on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's you know, mm. who you're going to cast and it's, uh, who else you're going to cast and where you're going to shoot it and how you're going to shoot it and developing a shooting style and suddenly, all the worries go out because you're focused on something completely. And I think that it's only now, strangely, now it's sort of a, there are posters and people are seeing the movie that I, I kind of feel nervous again because yeah. you know suddenly it's out there and you can feel people's hopes and expectations. And yeah. um, and I think if I'd been worrying if I'd been worrying too much about the end result, I wouldn't have done anything at all. I'd still be just waiting, you know. And I think that that's what you can do. The other thing is, you know, I've made one film before this, and I want to, albeit in a quite a broad public spotlight i want to keep stretching in different directions i don't want to apply the, sh- the same shooting style to another piece of material i wanted something that would pull me in another direction that would force me to shoot in a different way yeah. would force me to design and to and to compose shots in a different way and uh, there are certain similarities definitely but there are more differences i hope than similarities and one of the things that attracted me to the piece was yeah. it was completely different
0: now, was your first encounter with Road to Perdition in the form of the graphic novel, the, the sort of comic book novel in which it was first published, or was it the screenplay?
1: Uh, it was the screenplay, mm-hmm. actually, and I'm glad it was the screenplay. And the reason that I'm glad is because when I read the screenplay, I started thinking immediately in the images, the images that, that came to me were from the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even realize, actually, at that stage, that it was from a graphic novel. And about two weeks later, someone sent me the graphic novel. And it has such a distinctive and brilliant look of its own that I think yeah. it might have actually hampered me in imagining the film myself. I would have imagined what was drawn on the page. Because it was kind of like, it's like storyboards, really. Um, but, uh, no, it was the script that, that yeah. it was David Self's script that first attracted me.
0: And what, what was it that most attracted you? Was it, um, you know, obviously there are some themes, you know, what's interesting is that this movie is so different than American Beauty, but there are some themes um, that are very strong in both films. And um, obviously the father and son theme it is a very strong component of American Beauty but it's not it's not the one you first you know think about um, it was actually just going back recently and looking at the film again I saw how strong that important the father son relationships were in that film but was was it that or the story itself what what was it
1: I think it's a combination of things I think it was, it was on the one hand it was an incredibly simple story with very complex themes and I, and I, I didn't know how that initially you just read it as a straightforward revenge drama and then the more you looked at it there was there wasn't just one father-son relationship there were two and both the fathers were set on a course of mutual destruction by protecting their least favored son Mm -hmm. and uh, the son that they had always considered a a difficult and problematic figure in their life Um, and that that began to fascinate me and the fact that it has at its core very contemporary issues you know without wanting to be preachy about it the uh, kids and violence you know does, does the watching of violence by children force them themselves to be violent? Yeah. But at the heart, it was a, also a family drama and, and began again with a, a family in which something wasn't right and yeah. featured this morally ambivalent central figure who you're having a shifting relationship with during the course of the film and who ends by dying. I can say that yeah. because you've all seen the movie, but I can't <laughs> say that to the press. Right.
0: Um,
1: in a slightly more, even more graphic way than Kevin Spacey, you know, cops yeah. it at the end of American Beauty, so it's, it, it, you know, there are similarities, but, but I think that the other thing is, and, and it would be wrong to ignore this, there was also the landscape of the picture and the canvas against which it was told was very attractive to me. I found the, the kind of bleak poetry of the emptiness, the sense of father and son getting lost in the, in the Midwest and under those blank skies and the flatness of the landscape and the, the beauty of the place, and the sense of it starting in darkness and moving to light, starting in winter in this frozen world and moving to, yeah. to, to spring as the central figure became humanized. you know, Those things really interested me, and I felt they were built into the story um, quite clearly from the beginning.
0: And how would you say you got a feeling for the landscape I and mean, for this particular American landscape? Um, is there any way that you sort of uh, immersed yourself in real landscapes?
1: Well, I mean, both, on both movies, I, I found myself depending a lot on the location scout to mm. to learn about the landscape and uh, and i also with this one particularly changed the script and changed certain scenes to fit locations that i found that mirrored the emotional state without wanting to sound pretentious the emotional state of the characters yeah. during the the story and so i shifted see that diner scene was originally set in a town and i put it on its own mm. i felt that this the isolation was important mm-hmm. um all sorts of things like connor living in that hotel at the beginning yeah. the sense of him being isolated from the family um yeah. you know various things but i but it's partly because i found those locations and, and changed the story to suit the landscape that i i found in, in uh, you know we all found in kind of an hour's drive from chicago and in chicago itself
0: yeah it's um you know sort of early in your career i guess to talk about a great co- collaboration but obviously you're work with Conrad Hall, the, the, the partnership that you have in both these films is, is extraordinary. And this is one of the most beautiful looking films in, you know, in quite a while. So could you talk a bit about your work with him?
1: Well, I feel incredibly fortunate to work with this master of his art and craft. And um, you know, he, one of the saddest things for me is this is a 77 year old man who I, you know, unless he <laughs> lives to 110, I probably won't be working with for very much longer that saddens me and I've, i got nostalgic about it even as i was making mm. it because he's become a very good friend he's a wonderful yeah. person to have there but it's not you know you can get very caught up in the science of movie making i think and, and you know you storyboard everything you plan everything to the nth degree and, and then some, you're dependent on someone or some people if you're lucky actors hopefully but in this case a cinematographer to provide the last 10% and it's of magic yeah. of something that you haven't imagined something you couldn't possibly you know, uh, explain. Yeah. Um, and I think he, he does something that people don't talk about a lot and he works he understands light and how to create emotion with light, how to paint character with light, how to what to hide and what to show, how daring you can be. And and, and sometimes it's not just the prettiness of the picture, it's it's what he it tells you that plus the composition of the shot, what it tells you about the story. Mm. And here was a movie I was trying to tell the story in words in pictures more than in words. I mean American Beauty is a very dialogue heavy movie it took half the time to cut because Mm. oftentimes you're cutting to the person who's talking you know basically i mean you occasionally you decide not to and there are reasons to begin in other ways um but here because i i knew that the story had to be carried in pictures more than in words i took a huge amount i shot much more footage um and i was much more dependent on Mm. the light to create the atmosphere and the emotion and i was also very dependent on tom newman who wrote the score. Mm-hmm. to, again, add another dimension of emotion to the story, which, you know, if, if mistreated, could be cold, because I was trying to deal with it in a way that was at arm's length and not yeah. uh, uh, sentimental and not indulgent yeah. with the emotion. Because I think with, with a kid, you're only yeah. uh, just hair's breadth from sentimentality.
0: Well, there seems to be an interest of yours, and um, certainly in both the films, of finding a balance between a kind of tough, unsentimental look and a real intimate emotionalism, and, and um, you know, when I first saw *American Beauty*, I thought of, I remembered all the sort of tableau shots, you know, the um, you know some, some of the dinner table scenes and some of the very sort of theatrical-looking tableaus. But um, again, in seeing the film again, and in this film tonight, there's a real powerful use of close-ups that you don't you don't u- seem to use close-ups a lot, but when the, when you do use them. They seem to be very pointed and very effective. Could you talk about sort of how you decide when to use a close-up? And, and well, I mean, I think, that, uh,
1: I think there are two things that I... When I came to make the first movie, I kind of, um, you know, I continued what had been a lifelong crash course in, in movie making by watching them. And I, and I began to realize the way I wanted to make a film by watching people make films in different ways. And I, and I thought that the two things that were most overused were steady cam. Well, three things, really excessive cutting steady cam and close-up right. and i just it's purely taste i mean it's nothing to do with anything i have no philosophy i have no way i think other people should make films it's just what i like yeah and and uh you know i i, I remember very distinctly watching the ice storm which i thought was a wonderful movie and i'm a huge admirer of ang lee's work and and i remember very right at the end he, he cut to the close to a close-up of sigourney weaver waking up in the sunlight after her own son had died and she didn't know this yet and um, it, it, I suddenly realized as I was watching this movie that he hadn't used an extreme close-up until that moment, or maybe yeah. two or three. Yeah. And it had the effect, it was like an explosion. Right. It was like, it was the most powerful shot in the film, and it was just a human face waking up from sleep. And I, I was very moved by that. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded, again, by how powerful it can be to use a close-up at the right time yeah. when you haven't seen that. And I think that also, when you study movies in the thirties and forties, the close-up the use of close-up is minimal. I mean, if if yeah. ever, well, certainly the gangster movies, that, yeah. um, you know, you're you're uh, uh, you're using them sparingly. And yeah. I think television. And the other thing is the monitor screen, which I think is a very dangerous thing. You know, if you if you if you sit and watch the monitor screen on set the whole time, you know, you're constantly—it's a very small screen—you're constantly wanting to see the face up close. You're moving the camera close because you can't see it on the screen. But if you look through the camera, or if you sit by the camera, which is what I tend to do until I stop bugging the actors, in which case I, I bugger off. But, the, uh, <laughs> but, but the, you know, you, you're reminded of how how much you see in a mid-shot or a single, yeah. um, and how much body language and the space that you place between people can tell the story. Um, and then, you know, uh, again, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, but then there, there should be some scheme, some structure to the way that you shoot a central character. For example, uh, Sullivan in this movie... You know, there's, there's, I think one close-up in the first thirty-five, forty minutes of the film of Tom Hanks, right. um, and that's partly because the sent, the boy does not know his father. He's keep, you know, the movie keeps the character at arm's length, in some subliminal attempt to put you or to make you want to get into the car with the boy, yeah. when he goes to find out what his dad does for a living. And I think that um, that sense of trying to keep him both as an actor and as a character at arm's length is very important. You know, is that Tom Hanks that I think we have a relationship with him. No, we don't. We can't get close to him. He's behind a half-closed door. His face is reflected in a mirror. He's through a crowded room of dancers. He's unreadable on some level, and it's very difficult to make Tom Hanks unreadable because he's so yeah. emotionally explicit all the time. But in a story where, as I said before, the central character needs to be humanized, he needs to be cold and distant at the beginning. Um, and I, and I, so that was you know the way we tried to do that was well, the way we shot, the way we designed that corridor, that long corridor at the beginning, the way we designed the colors of the rooms, the sense of a frozen world, of an emotionally inert environment that the story starts in. That's, that's in everything, including the way he shot.
0: Yeah, and I think we don't see Paul Newman really close. I, I, I might be wrong, but the um, scene when they're doing the piano duet, I, I remember that being the first time. We really get, time a, you get a, a yeah. close look at him, and it's quite stu- stunning. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, it's not a bad face. Um,
0: LAUGHTER um, one thing that's true in, in, in both the films is that in both movies there's an incredible um, relentless forward energy to the, the narrative. So on one level this is sort of classical, old-fashioned, straightforward storytelling which is becoming rarer and rarer. I mean we're sort of used to seeing movies now that are jumping all over the place in time or maybe have three or four different storylines going you know, simultaneously so you can sort of never lose interest in one of them. Um, but combined with the sort of layer of, of, of meaning, I mean, there's sort of, a, you know, thematic layers and uh, motifs, you know, in this movie, the water motif, obviously. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a bit, I mean, it's sort of a hard sort of general question to talk about, but, you know, sort of how you combine these two different things. You know, the, the story that's sort of always moving ahead and then the, the mean, you know, the, the layers of meaning, which, you know, for a work of art to be worth coming back to time and time again is, is important.
1: Well, I mean, as far as the the story moving forward, I think there's a difference sometimes that's not clear in contemporary films. Sometimes the story feels like it's moving fast, and actually (laughs) nothing's happening. And that's the thing with, you know, oh, Christ, there's nothing happening. We better better cut to make it look like there is something happening. And there's a whole lot of story in this movie, a lot of story, and it comes in under two hours. But the story is never, I hope, rushed, and it has a kind of, uh, what I was trying for, was a sort of hypnotic pace at the beginning. And that, again, goes to how you shoot. You need, you need to know that a lot of the story is going to be carried in single shots or one single traveling shot or a, a well-composed master shot. All of those things are, are what's going to keep you interested in the film, not close-ups and not excessive cutting. So, you know, you have to shoot like that from the beginning. There are certain scenes. There's that scene in the dance hall when father and son are talking about, when do I get my share of the money? And he says, how much do you want? He says, $200. That's just a two-shot. Um... And, and uh, there's no coverage. I took no coverage in that scene. I just knew that I wanted to cover that scene in a two shot. It meant I took a lot of takes of that one two shot to get the timing right because I hoped an audience would respond during the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and my career in theatre has taught me that you need to leave space for, if you're lucky enough to get a laugh, you need to leave space where that, that can happen so you don't obliterate the next yeah. line. All of those things you're trying to plan for up front. And the rest of it, thematically, the layering of the film, the water motif uh in this film came from a piece of research about wakes in the 30s irish wakes and i read that that they used to keep the dead bodies on water and that the 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 uh, excuse me uh, the dead bodies on ice and the ice used to melt and drip into buckets the buckets used to catch the water and i just thought what a great image for decomposition and for the sense of (coughs) that that, uh, the uh, the sense of fate that i wanted to hang over the film that eventually the dam will burst that life you know you can't control once you've set one domino in motion all of them will have to fall and you can't control it you know and to me water is uncontrollable it slips through your fingers it you know so it's in every scene um it found its way into every scene in which there was a death bathrooms rain in the streets the lake at the lake at the beginning of the movie and the end the very sound of the water and the sound of the rain the sense of this um this claustrophobia within space, yeah. which was something that I thought was created by that, so that was just that yeah. one strand of it. Do you
0: think you're freer as a director when, when, you're not the writer of the work, when you're not the there's such a um, been such a tradition in, a, in um, maybe since the rise of auteurs cinema, the idea that of the writer director, you know, and so every director has to write their own screenplay, um, and. Your approach, I mean your background in theatre where that, that tradition wasn't true, where you know, you would, a director would interpret a piece of material um, is the tradition. So in some ways I'm, it's refreshing to see somebody, a director who really wants to direct and interpret and not sort of worry that it has to be their, their screenplay as well.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm blessed that I I'm a terrible writer, so that makes it impossible <laughs> for me to even think about it. Um, and it does, But, you know, I, in all honesty, I much prefer getting a script and using it as a springboard yeah. because I think if you analyze a script too much, you know, you can, you can lose the first initial instinct as to why you wanted to do the story. And I need to kind of jump on an already moving train, I feel. Like, I just need it to be in action in some way. I'm very bad at kind of generating material. I'm even bad at developing things, really. I, I need to get hands on something that resembles a script and then I can kind of go on from there. I really enjoy that. I love I love reading. I love the screenplay format. Yeah. I love that it's working in images. I love that it has to work within a certain number of pages. I love that there for most people there is a kind of an, a three act structure even though I don't pretend to understand what it is. Um, but but I but I <laughs> like the uh, but I like the notion of a three act structure. I can never tell where the act breaks come
0: though you know. I was like <laughs> I think this is the
1: end of act. Oh no, that's the end of act 2, you know.
0: You said something um, in um, our local newspaper here, the New York Times, that was inter- really interesting to me because you talked about, uh, you know, theater, the works you are doing, you do in theater as being sort of ephemeral. They don't last forever. And when you make a film, there was a phrase that um, you were quoted as saying that you're sort of wor- reaching for immortality, that a film is in the culture and it lasts forever. And... Um, and I want to ask you, in, in relation to that, about working with such great stars as Tom Hanks and Paul Newman, because the first thing you see you know the, when the credits start to roll is those names: Tom Hanks and Paul Newman, and um, you know it just makes you think right away of the great movie stars, you know Henry Fonda or James Stewart, and all the meaning um, and importance that comes with those names and and what responsibility does that you know, do you feel and and what is it like you know sort of what is it like? Working with them, but also you're working with their images and everything that we bring to... to um... I'm not
1: sure you should have too much of a responsibility to actors other than to make them, let's just put them in a good movie. I mean, I think that you, you can't second guess what an audience will think of their characters or of them in the role or anything like that. I think you have a responsibility when you're making a movie uh, because I think people look to movies for yeah. some kind of guidance, particularly in these times. So I think there is a responsibility to take violence seriously and in, in, in this film. But what I love about the American cinema, which in a sense doesn't really exist and has never really existed anywhere else, possibly in France for maybe 10 or 15 years, where you have a, a, an ongoing relationship with an actor as, a, as an audience, as a public. You know, you have a sense of what Tom Hanks represents. Mm-hmm. And you can start, you can use that or you can subvert it. And you can enlarge an audience's relationship with, a, with an actor in some way. And that's what I felt, you know, if you look at something like a movie like Vertigo, the way you take the existing notion of Jimmy Stewart and you turn it around, you turn it on yeah. its head. Um, someone asked Hitchcock, who was great with one-liners always, um, <laughs> w- what, why do you cast movie stars in your movies and not just actors? You know, why do you cast Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart? And he said, because it saves me 20 minutes of exposition. The audience already knows these characters. They know these men. <laughs> right. I can just get on with the story, you know? Right and uh, and you certainly know when you watch north by northwest you know what he means because they tell you he tells you nothing about Cary grant but you absolutely know who he is right. you know he's your best friend he's Cary grant you know right. and uh it's like uh, of course you're going to watch you're going to want to cast Cary grant there's another hitchcock phrase actually that 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 was with me all through the shooting of this movie which is another one-liner which is shoot your murders like love scenes and your love scenes like murders which i think is one of the greatest things ever said about about movie making and uh and, and the, the idea behind that subvert expectations, twist cliches, um, think of it from from the you know turn, from turning 180 degrees and then think of it again. That there is a scene at the end, the scene between Tom and Paul in the rain, which is shot as a love scene, even though there are nine people killed, and and right. scored yeah. as a love scene, and the sound is dealt with in an appropriate manner too. Yeah. And I think that that was something I was I was looking to try and achieve. Now,
0: was it. that scene written? This um, that that scene was very different than what we, what we see in the book, in the original novel, the idea of just having the two of them, this very pared-down scene that you know, evokes a showdown from a classic Western, maybe. But was that something that was in the script? Was that some, I mean uh,
1: That was something that I developed with David. Yeah. I, I had a... It was origi- the original script, and those who don't know, he killed him in a boxing ring during a union rally in front of about 3,000 people. Right. And uh, he killed about 20 other people, and it was it's a festival of blood. And, um, and uh, it was kind of an amazing scene, but, but it was uh, completely incredible. He walked out, of course, unscathed, and, um, being a hero. Uh, and I, just, I partly thought, within the context of this, e- even though this is not a real movie in the traditional sense, that's incredible. Uh, but I also wanted something that was a personal scene between the two of them. And you know, there's a big change between the movie and the graphic novel, and that is that in the movie, Paul Newman's character is a conflicted man, not just a bad man. He is someone who also, like Tom... Right realizes that he has built a life on sand and that he is a he's a morally bankrupt human being but he's covered that up brilliantly with a show of warmth and friendship for years
0: and uh, another invention and i don't know when it came along was this uh jude law's character the photographer which um you know to me um you know echoed the sun with the video camera in american beauty um you know this idea of the observer and that's and that's new that's not in the novel at all the idea of this ca- sort of cameraman that was david slash, Sel- that was that okay. was the
1: screenwriter's creation that was David david's yeah. creation but um jude brought a very a very distinct um originality to it and and i loved working with him on it and uh but we based it the photographs you see in the movie are photographs taken by a police photographer um genuinely at the time and what's fascinating about the photographs is not that they're very well composed and and strangely beautiful which they are and there are many thousands of them and they're all unsigned but that the photographer in almost every photograph has gone to the crime scene moved the dead body <laughs> into a place which makes a better photograph you know moved moved the hat and like rearranged some of the furniture i mean it's right. bizarre you know and you can see he's moved it because you know the blood shot the 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 blood splatter is over on the wrong side of the wall or the the bullet hole is over, and it And and, and that man that moved the body to make a better photograph, that's kind of who he is. (laughs) Um, That man who took all those photographs. And it's published in a book called Evidence. It's an amazing book. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see his feet because he used a tripod. So you see his feet occasionally, but you never see him.
0: Um, Just to to jump back, we did talk a bit about Tom Hanks, but just to jump back to that and his performance because it is a different kind of role. It's not... I mean, Cary Grant also is, uh, I think, sort of an underrated actor because he was able to do so many different roles and always seem like Cary Grant. But this is Tom Han- this is a different Tom Hanks than we've seen. Um, and could you talk a bit about what you know yeah, how I you work that, with him to- I, I
1: think that um I mean I think you put your finger on him, you say he's not he the thing about Tom for me is that he never stands outside the character and comments on it. He never says, Look you know, look it's just it's okay guys, it's just me, it's Tom Hanks, you can relax. You know, so there's no there's no wink that just lets you off the hook. There's no little moment that says uh, but he's a good guy, really. You know, he just—he's very contained, and I think we work very hard on taking away things that we felt the character couldn't say or well, didn't have the ability to say. He did not know how to communicate with his family. He did not know how to analyse his own situation within the narrative. You know, I think films are very fond of lines like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, in in a scene, for example, where he goes to see uh, Frank Nitti, uh, th- th- there was a line that at uh, one stage. They would have liked me to put in something like my wife and son are dead would you walk away you know this kind of weird kind of rhetorical people don't speak like that you yeah. know um this kind of uh, sense of uh, you want the audience to be in my shoes would you walk away this, this uh, and and it, it, it movies are filled with that kind of you know rhetoric speak you know ah oh, but david you are a man who knows no love and a man who knows no love <laughs> knows no fear and a man who fears nothing well who is he you know it's like hang on a minute <laughs> I, I, the thought I knew what was going on at the beginning of that sentence and I'm yeah. lost now you know so it's just that, that kind of strange you know bar- it sounds important but right. what are you talking about you know right. and anyway people don't talk like that people are inarticulate they say the wrong thing right. and I think one of the things I love about the scene with Frank Nitti with Stanley Tucci who's brilliant I think in the movie is that is, that the, the, the t- is, is how inarticulate Tom is how inarticulate how he says it wrong at the wrong time he has an idea which is slightly off balance about how he how his first line will sound to Frank Nitty. he's nervous too and i think that the violence also is is an attempt to kind of capture what i i know which is blessedly little about violence which is that it happens very fast and when it does it's very very awkward happens when people are off balance people get hit in 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 odd ways and stabbed in odd ways and um, and I, and I, and I think that, uh, and it's very, very explosive and it's over in a flash. And, uh, you know, it's only afterwards that you reel it back and you, you go back over it in slow motion. Yeah.
0: What, um, were uh, the things that you had to do physically with Tom Hanks? I read a little bit about, about makeup, um, the, the makeup artist, you know, he, he looks, his face looks sort of tougher and, and, um, it looks a bit different than you know. We yeah, we did some him. And also, you have the lighting of the. I mean, the fact that he's wearing a hat so much. Yeah, you
1: know. the hat. The hat helps, but you know, it's from the inside really. I mean, that kind of thing is only a grace note on on what he's doing. He he, like Paul, is very very still in yeah. the film, and a lot of a lot is achieved by not looking at people. Um, yeah, and when he does focus on them, um, you know focusing a little bit harder than anyone else I, I i mean it's it these things happen on the day and and you piece it together very gradually in the cutting room and there isn't a kind of master plan but i yeah. did spend a lot of time asking him to talk quieter and lower yeah um and not move so much yeah. um and he was you know delighted to do that because he said i hey, normally they ask me to say more more please do more you know <laughs> i want i want more smiles give me more energy and you know i was saying you just just you don't need to do that much yeah. um you know which is uh Given how much energy he has as a man, is, is yeah. it was, was, I think, remarkable.
0: Um, I have to ask you about your use of um, win, you know, windows, and <laughs> which it seems to be, if there's one motif that I really see in both movies, this idea of sort of what's private and what's not private, and what you this idea of secrets. You've talked a lot about secrets of, um, as a director trying to uncover the secrets, um, the secret of the text that you're trying to interpret, um, but people have secrets and they're often seen you know, you know we're, we often get glimpses through windows into private lives if you could talk a bit um, the kind of thing directors hate to do is analyze their own work but if yeah it's
1: it's, it is, it's difficult uh, because it sounds um, it sounds premeditated and, and so often it isn't so often it's something that comes on the day yeah. or you see a shot that suddenly strikes you and all that kind of thing but, but <clears throat> i think in both movies both movies are filled with very lonely people I think. I think if there is a kind of thematic link between the film, I think it's full of lonely people, and I think the loneliest people are the people who live together in a house and they call themselves a family. Mm. I don't think. I think that's <laughs> by chance. Um, I don't think. I believe that of all families, but I, yeah. I think that it, it is definitely the case in this. I think that the key moments in both films, American Beauty and in this, to characters often happen when they are on their own. Um, I think uh, you know. We thinking of Sullivan's realization of what's hap- what's about to happen with his. Uh, with his wife and child i'm thinking about his moment of peace at the end of the movie i'm thinking about michael breaking down and crying in the reading room with all those people around him those are very solitary moments and those are the moments when character is revealed away from other character when nothing is between them and the other person so that they're not editing what they do they're not they're not self-conscious ever they they are and so you the audience have access to their inner world as it were and the the window thing is 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 kind of it was used more specifically in America Beauty about in a movie about entrapment and imprisonment. You know this is it's used differently here. I think to, the only time I use it really consciously as a kind of uh, um, as a storytelling device is the very very end when my feeling about the last scene when he's looking out over the beach and you have that reflection shot, obviously of Michael Jr. waving at him, and you know you have these three planes of. Of, of activity right. you have you have the reflection you have the beach itself and then you have what's in the room which is maguire standing behind him and shooting him um what's happened there is he is in a sense already passed on because to me the movie mm-hmm. and i can say this because you've seen it is a flashback at, <clears throat> at the beginning from the boy on the beach and it's a film populated entirely by ghosts mm-hmm. it's a film populated by people who are already dead because they're people who, in a sense, already know that they're dead. They already know that they're doomed. On some level, they've killed themselves years ago. And, um, and, and so the, the, the soundscape of the film, the sense in which people float through it, they, their feet barely touch the ground, that the rain, even though it's heavy, heavy, it's, it's the softest whispering sound most of the time. That, that's because ghosts occupy this landscape, and the only real person in it is the boy, Who's the, I, whose eyes you see the movie through now that's a very subliminal thing yeah. but it's something that, that, that actually dictated in many ways how we dubbed the film, how we scored it you know, and how we shot it too
0: Yeah. Okay. well actually uh, you're on a um, whirlwind um, tour here with the premiere of the film tomorrow and I know we actually promised to get you to your next engage- appointment which is not uh, sleep but you're going off okay. to a dinner so um, we'll end on that note and I really want to thank you and congratulate you thank you, you very much thank you Nick. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.